Welcome to the Woodshop Life podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and today I'm joined by the one and only God Dunlap of God's Woodshop. How's it going? Good, Sean. How are you, man? Pretty good. We are wheelless today. He will be oh, back on the, next, <laughs> on the next episode. Um, so it's just Guy and I winging it for this one. Uh, this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We'd like to thank our newest patron, Bob McConnell, and we also have a Patreon account right now. We have one level, and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife. With that out of the way, Guy, what is your first question? All right. This comes from John, and John asks, Oh, he says something first, but uh, thanks for the great podcast. I've learned a lot throughout the episodes. I've been a wood turner for 12 or so years, but now getting into fine furniture making. A shout out to Sean as I'm a fellow Kentuckian. He's from Louisville. Oh, hey. My question is working on two shaker side tables right now that are 20 by 20 inches. As I think about the drawer construction, I'm at a bit of a crossroads with the bottom of the drawer. I could get high quality quarter inch plywood for the drawer bottom and put plywood in the grooves. However, I don't like the thought of putting plywood in my tables. If I were to be honest, uh, I, I, I feel you on that, John, I'm sure it would be structurally fine and I wouldn't have to worry about wood movement. However, I'd like for the bottom to be made of poplar, like the sides and back of the drawer. How do I make a drawer bottom for four quarter lumber? My here's his real question. My planer says I can't plane anything thinner than half inch, which I find kind of strange, but, and I don't have a drum sander. What is the best way to thin a board to quarter inch or three eighths for a drawer bottom? I'd rather not use hand tools as I have arthritis in my hands. Is this a job for a planer sled? Thanks much, John. And he goes to list the different uh, shop tools he has that we can, so we know what he can, uh, used to do this. He says he has a 13 inch planer. I've never heard of a 13 inch planer that couldn't go past a quarter of an inch. Half inch or half inch. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't either. So maybe it's a older one or this is a model I'm not familiar with. So I have a solution. There are a couple different solutions. I'm going to give a solution. I know Sean's probably got one in his back pocket too. Hope so. So, um, Actually, I'm going to say two things. The, the first one is, yes, you could use a planer sled. That, that is a good job or for, a, for a planer sled. It doesn't have to be anything crazy. It could just be a, a piece of wood and you just put the stuff on top there and it'll just raise it up. Another way to do it is to get it down to your half inch, let's say, and then put a rabbit around the edges. So you've got a quarter inch left. And that can go in your grooves. Yeah, that's a, that's a way to do it. One way to do it. Do you have anything, Sean? Oh man, I would. Let's see. So it's he's working on two checker side tables that are twenty by twenty. I imagine that's probably the top. So the inner drawer parts are probably going to be small enough. I would resaw using your fourteen inch bandsaw to pieces that are six inches wide joint them and then um i'm going to steal guys original thunder and say um i would use a planer sled 
and prop them up, tape them down or however you want to do it um, and run them through. Um, That's what I would do. And I would double check that your planer says a half inch. Maybe it says a quarter inch. I mean, all of the ones that I've used, you can go down to a quarter. And I think even the DeWalt had a, had one of those stops at a quarter or maybe it was three quarters and a half inch. Maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't remember. Yeah, I don't either. Um, Another way to do it is you could do it how it was traditionally done way back in the day, which is bevel the corner outside edges. Ah, yeah. Dang. Uh, Turn the board over and use a hand plane and bevel, kind of like uh, like you do for frame and plant frame and panel door. Mm-hmm. And you bevel the actually the inside of the door, um, so it fits into those grooves. You can do that also as another yeah. another way to do it. Yep, this is true. And you can uh, start that by using a you know, tall auxiliary fence at the table saw and cut a bevel yeah. on it and finish with a hand plane. You can do it that way, or use a hand plane. Um, as far as plywood goes, I used to think that I would never put any plywood in anything. Now I'm of the opinion that in some cases, some cases, it's okay to use. I I don't think plywood in a drawer bottom is that big of a deal. Not for me anymore. But then that's me. I... I don't mind it, but I will say if you're going to use it so that it doesn't rattle, there's a couple ways you can fix that. I'd mm-hmm. make sure to get a plywood bit at the for a router table or bump your fence over with your regular eighth inch blade and get a snug enough fit that it's not going to you're not going to fight it, but it doesn't rattle when you put stuff in it. Uh, a good way to to handle that rattling too. <laughs> I know we're we we're really off on a tangent here, <laughs> but. Um, I use hot glue. Yeah. And I, I slap some hot glue on the back of it. And that does work. Um, and that prevents the door drawer from rattling. So. Yep. Just the thought. Yeah. I, uh, I like that thought. All right. Well, I guess the next one is me. This is from Mason with Blair's Woodshop. Before I ask my question, I just wanted to mention I love the podcast. It's awesome for my morning commute. Uh, I think I'm about 80 episodes complete and look forward to more. Thank you guys for all the hard work on the podcast. Just a question for Sean. He sent me this DM and said he was also going to send it through. So I didn't pay him to send me this. It was free charge. <laughs> no, uh, I see that he has a Formax 1632. I just acquired the same style Jet 1632. My question is if you have ever had issues with the conveyor belt tracking. I can't seem for the life of me to get it to track straight. No matter what I do, it always tracks to the right. It has always took a chunk out of my, it is always, it is, I'm sorry, I can't even read today. It has already took a chunk out of my brand new Maverick abrasives conveyor belt. I know I'm not the only one with this issue, but no one seems to really have a fix. The only thing I've seen that might work is to buy a rubber conveyor belt, which is upwards of $125 plus shipping. Any help would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. I had this exact same issue when I first got my drum sander. Um, I bought it used and the guy had 36 grit paper in it and was using it like a planer and trying to take, take a lot of material off on, um, on treated, uh, 
break all that <laughs> stuff on treated pine or outdoor boards and stuff. So he bought it for that thinking it was going to work like a planer. So he stuck 36 grit in there. And, you know, needless to say, after I bought it, I had, I had to fix it. So, um, the first thing that I did was turn it on and use it. And the, the conveyor belt tracked to the left too far and just ripped it in half. And I was like, Oh man, this sucks. So I had to take a trip to Woodcraft and spend at the time, I think it was $80 uh, for a new conveyor belt. I think it was 80. Um, And then I struggled with it for probably about two hours trying to get it to track dead center on the, uh, on the conveyor. And normally I would uh, recommend reading the manual. Uh, the manual helps a little bit, but it just took a lot of trial and error. What is the, the man, do you, do you, if you remember back that far, what, what does the manual recommend to do? You know what guy, guess what I got in front of me? I got the manual. Oh, cause I pulled this up because I wanted to make, I, sure I keep setting them up and you keep knocking them down. I tell you what, listen, <laughs> that's the manual. I wanted to learn the name of that little, little device there to take up screw nut. Um, to adjust the tension of the conveyor belt, I'm not going to read this to you, but basically what I did was I put the new conveyor belt on there, tighten it up just enough to where it doesn't slide. Uh, like you, what I mean is turn the conveyor on and if you hold your hand on it, it doesn't slide. Get it just tight enough. Keep it keep it slow, not too fast. And then slowly tighten it down until you get it close to where you want and keep it slow. You'll start to see it creep to one side or the other. Immediately stop it and then tighten and loosen, tighten the tighten the route, the way that the belt's going and loosen the other side, turn it back on. You got to let it make a couple of rounds in order for it to, to take up that new adjustment and keep doing that slowly until it starts to track. I know that's probably exactly what you're doing, but it just, it, I had to start over probably five or six times before I was able to get it. And I'm still not able to get it to track dead center. I, it's mm. still f- too far to the left, but it doesn't rub. I think the key is to not over tighten it. Um, and, and it's another key is to make sure that when you do it, you start slow and slowly make the turns unless it's obviously moving really fast, but you just got to get it to where it's, it's, it's good enough. And it's when you put run wood through there, that the pressure of the wood is not going to cause it to slip and it's not going to cause it to, uh, to continue shifting Uh, a quarter turn at a time on the take up screws uh, and again, you got to let it run a couple cycles after you make those adjustments so that it, you know, kicks in and, and all of that stuff. And um, for the, you got to give it time for the belt to react to the adjustments is what I'm saying. And then just slowly a quarter turn at a time. And you're going to get to the point to where it's just too close and you got to stop, reset the belt, tighten it back up and keep doing it. It is not fun, but eventually slowly you will get it to where it'll stop. It's not dead center, but it's not too far to the side where it's going to rip. It's a pain in the butt. Maybe it's a, there's something, I'm I'm sorry, but you know, those, the way those track Mm -hmm. is it helps you, you're kind of like putting the, the rollers in parallel with one another and co-planer. Right. I'm wondering if one of them is so out of whack that you just can't get it back in with the, the amount of adjustment that's available. I tried measuring mine because you can measure their distance between them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it is, but I, I even measuring the distance between the two rollers, I, I could not get it to where I, it looked it measured it perfect, but nope, still pulled to the left, still pulled to the left. Huh. It's like, I don't know. It's like 
magic to get these things to work, but it's still too far to the left. It's not centered, but it's not, it's, it's not moving is what I had to settle on. And I was fine with it, but it's such a pain in the butt. I don't know if it's just this style or what. I wish I had an answer or something to add to that. I really don't. I haven't experienced that. I've had two drum sanders. Uh, One was a a Performax 1938, which worked fine. I never had any problems with it. And then I upgraded to the the Powermatic, the 22-inch. Yeah. Um, And again, you know, no problems with that one either. Well, that's good because so, uh, it's a hassle. It's <laughs> it reminds me a lot of setting the uh, setting up and aligning the uh, the jet planer combo. It, it's it, it takes <laughs> it takes a while. Um, it, it, you know, Mason. One of the things I don't know if I said it or not. If you tighten one side a quarter of a turn, you need to loosen the other side a quarter of a turn. So you got whatever you do on the one side, you need to do on the other side. Not just tighten, 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 tighten. You need to you need to offset it on the other side and loosen it so that it's you know you're going to make the, the same amount of adjustments on both sides um again keep it slow keep it slow and then stop it as soon as it looks like that's it's just going to rub um the, the only thing i can say is just, just takes trial and error and it's, you'll eventually get it to where it's happy and not moving hopefully <laughs> but um hopefully that helps mason and now our first sponsor of the show, 3M Extract. Fast cut, long life, and good dust management. When it comes to sanding, you had a, a choice of maybe one or two if you're lucky. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about 3M Extract. With their new net sanding discs, you can have all three. Loaded with 3M Science, they'll cut fast and get the job done in a hurry. The cool looking crisscross coating puts more mineral on the disc than any net style disc has had before, so they'll last and last. And a 3M net backing will allow your vacuum to extract up to 99% of the airborne dust. So I had an opportunity to use this um, sanding some cherry. I have some eight quarter cherry that I'm using for some new vice chops. Uh, sanded it with 80, 120, 180, 220. Uh, and man, it really does cut fast. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of it. And the 220 left it nice and smooth. And the dust collection was awesome. Uh, I did. One of the cool things that I liked about the, uh, the discs is normally I use the same uh, disc to break the edges. So I was able to fold it. And instead of it being like a paper style disc that creases really bad, I was able to fold it, use it to break the edges with my hands. And it didn't have a big crease down the middle from folding it in half. So I thought that was pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I, I definitely like the 3M extract to learn more and buy now visit go.3m.com forward slash extract two. That's geo dot the number three letter M dot com slash X T R A C T two. You'll find a three M extract Cubitron two net disc seven ten W, the most advanced sandy disc ever made, and its little brother, the three M extract disc three ten W. Three M extract sand less, make more. Well, with that guy, what do you have for us next? I've got a question from Joshua from Black Dog Woodworks. And he says, hey, guys, as always, I love the podcast. Appreciate your individual takes on questions and hearing about what's going on in your shops, except for Guy. He doesn't like, oh, he's too busy working to have anything going on in his own shop. Yeah, I'll agree with that. So this is a good question. I kind of like it. It says, my question is about learning from your mistakes. 
Throughout your woodworking adventures, I'm sure you've all had that project that did not come out the way you had planned or expected. I recently found some very old woodworking projects that I made somewhere in the late 1990s. Instead of throwing them out, I put them in my shop to remind me of two things, where I've come from and what not to do. Do you guys have anything like this in your shops? What do you use to remind you to do better? Well, if I had room in my shop, I probably would. At work at one time, I had what I called the wall of shame because I had wall space there. (laughs) And I had a couple things I really screwed up. And every morning I looked at one one in particular was I was making some uh, backgammon boards and chess boards. And it was all hand cut squares and everything was hand cut. And the backgammon ones were, I wouldn't say it didn't take a, a, a hell of a long time, but it was very tedious work to get everything just right. And I, I think I had like six of them to make. And I had made this one backgammon board. And I came in the next day, I, I, I you know, glued it up, put it down. And the next morning I came in, took it out of the bag and came over the table saw and I cut it wrong. Mm. Cut right into it. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. So that got put up on the wall of shame. Uh, again, every morning I, I tend to look at it and say, uh, I'm not going to do that again. Just reminds me to slow down and pay attention to what I'm doing. So do you have anything like that in your shop? Sean, I know you've got a, a, a table at your parents' house or oh, something yeah. at your parents' house that you always see that reminds you. Everything right. I've given my parents has <laughs> something that I look at every time I go over there. I'm like, God, on this table, that. God, on this table, that. Yeah, yeah I have. I don't have anything in my shop, but in, in my bathroom, I have a, a, a nice cabinet that I made that I cut too much off the door. So there's too much of a gap between them that I look at. Every time I go in there and it makes me mad every time I see it. So I know I, I make doors too large and slowly creep up on it. It's a lesson that every time I make doors, I make them too large. And now I'll never do that. I'll never make that mistake again. Um, there's uh, a, a, another piece that I made for my parents. Well, yeah, another piece that I made for my parents. It's a TV stand. Um I made using solid wood, solid cherry for the panels. Um, and it's a uh, pretty, pretty, pretty wide panel. So it has a audio receiver at the bottom, a cable box in the middle shelf and a Blu-ray player on the top. The audio receiver gets so hot that it has caused the middle panel to shrink and causes. Uh, so now the drawers that are above that, the corners on the on the inside are look like they're not the drawers not pushed all the way in but if you look on the right side of the drawers they're flush with the outside frame of the of the TV stand so because the middle drawer the middle shelf has gotten narrower so that reminded me to um, next time I make something like that think of uh, cooling perhaps um, you know cutting some larger holes in the back or using plywood and edge banding the stuff for the middle plot middle panels. Um, let's see. What else have I? <laughs> well, I'm looking at I'm looking at a piece right now in my office, which is a, a James Cranoff style case on stand, 
and I keep my my good liquor in there. So every time I go for a you know a glass of something decent, I look at the bottom of it, and right right by the doors when I open it up on the on the the stand part on one of the aprons, there's plainer snipe that I didn't mm. catch. Wow! And I see it every time. And it, I, ever I, now that like that would never ha- it would never happen again now because yeah. of that because now I know to just you know if I need a, a twenty inch board I make it like twenty six to twenty eight inches long and cut off the ends no matter what yeah no matter what because yeah, I just not, I don't want to have to deal with snipe they really stick with you and mm-hmm. in the the last well every project here's the thing every project that I've made including now has something that I look back on that makes me cringe. But the very first project I designed on my own in SketchUp with my own design are end tables made out of cherry. And I used, I cut dovetails and I had a had something, I don't know what it was. I think I even used a, um, a dovetail jig and I had a blowout or something and I used wood putty to fill it in and fix it. Well, that doesn't darken, the rest of it does. And now you can <laughs> clearly see the uh, wood putty. And I was like, oh, this looks great. I didn't know. Um, so now I'm, I look at that every time and, and there's no way I would do that again. Every project I learn, what not to do again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know it's not part of the question, but I'm going to ask anyways. Has there ever been a, a project that just came out perfect that you're perfectly happy with? Actually, yeah. Two. And I know the two, maybe three, and I've made a lot of stuff and only three, but yes, um, the desk that I'm sitting at now is my Nakashima style uh, table that I made. I use as my office desk because mm-hmm. it is stupid simple. It's a flat top. It's a, the base has some angles and stuff. So that, but yeah, that, um, a, um, a bench, a live edge bench that I made for my old boss and his uh, end tables that I made for him. Uh, commission pieces that a lot of people hated the drawer pulls. They were skulls. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he wanted them. He had them made. And, uh, but those three pieces that I can think of right now off the top of my head that in my mind came out, there's nothing that I'm dissatisfied with. Cool. What, what about you? Um, I would have to say my desk also. I'm sitting here looking at it. There's one spot. Uh-oh. I know it's there. There's some tear out. Oh. But you can't see it. I know it's there. <laughs> it's other a maker that, mark. Yeah. Other than that, it's it's damn near perfect. I'm, I'm really happy with it. And everything we find wrong with our projects, we bring somebody into it and inspect it. They'll never find it. Uh, my wife will find everything. <laughs> She's, she doesn't, she's, uh, I don't want to get into it. All right. So I guess you have the next question, Sean. Sounds good. All right. So my next question is from Matt. Hello, sirs. Thank you for providing the best woodworking podcast bar none. Well, thank you. I'm building a couple of side tables for my living room to go on either end of my couch. I'm using some eight quarter walnut slabs for the tabletops. I'm wondering what kind of finish you would recommend for these slabs. Bear in mind that I'm assuming my wife and children 
are not going to be too keen to reach for coasters every time they want to put a glass of water down. I prefer more of a matte finish, so don't really want to use epoxy or anything that's going to look like a layer of glass is sitting on top of the slab. So what products do you suggest to achieve maximum water protection without compromising a matte look? And please include any specific application techniques, i.e. number of coats, level of sand, sanding, etc. Many thanks. Keep up the amazing podcast. Well, I think we've covered this a couple times, so we'll keep it keep it brief for the uh, folks. But um, I'll say one and uh, that's you can apply by hand and then guy, you can perhaps talk about some spraying opportunities here for Matt. Um, but you know, I hate to say it, but I'm going to go with a, an oil-based, uh, varnish. Um, I would probably go with a wiping varnish, um, slash polyurethane. I would probably, if it were me, go with a satin (laughs) armor seal, um, and apply six or seven coats of satin. And I would sand in between each coat with, uh, you know, whatever the 223, 23, 400, whatever it is in between each coat. But the key is you need to build up a, a solid layer right there to uh, prevent, um, you know, well, not to prevent, to help protect. You're not going to prevent it. You're going to protect it uh, from the from the water. Um, since it's a, a wiping varnish, you are going to have to lay on more coats. I think a, a six or seven layers of or coats of a, a armor seal satin is going to give you a good looking uh, tabletop and it's not going to look like glass or plastic or anything like that. Uh, application techniques, I would wipe it on with a cotton rag. Um, and then I would probably put down two coats and then start sanding in between each layer, um, each level shoot each. What is it called? What's the word I'm missing here, guy? I've had not had much sleep last night. Um, (laughs) people are probably yelling at me right now. I'm not drunk. I promise. But no, I would, uh, that's what I do. I would sand, um, with 400, probably 300 or 320, 400, uh, sandpaper between each coat of Sev, uh, armor seal. That's what I would go with as a top coat guy. What would you recommend for something else? Well, the, that is probably the best thing in my opinion is what you just, just described. Um, there's nothing that'll protect everything or protect your furniture from everything. So since Sean has already mentioned the, the armor seal, I'm going to go a slightly different route and it might be not what everybody is thinking either, which, but maybe it is. Um, I'd put down maybe a coat or two of shellac and then you could seal it as your, your top coat with a water-based polyurethane that you would not have to spray. Roll it on with a foam brush. It, it flattens really nice. Or to spray on uh, a water-based conversion varnish. The thing with water-based stuff is, is if you get water on it and it sits on it, it'll cloud over. However, after some time, that cloudy, that little cloud will go away. That's the only real downside to it. Um, but I'd probably go the arm still around. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's hard to beat. I mean, you can get into yeah. things like spar urethane and this and that. But again, you're going back to something that's going to 
apply a film finish. So just do something like an armor seal. Um, their satin is hard to beat six, seven coats. It's going to look fantastic. Sand in between each coat. It's going to be awesome, awesome looking. Um, I do have a question. It's, 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 it's it's a a really, really rock hard finish too. It's a really good finish. Very durable. Yeah. That's what I meant. Very durable. It's not hard, but yeah, durable. Let me ask you a question, guy. What? So I have a kitchen table that I purchased when I moved in 11 years. I've look at me. I'm fitting in another question here. sounds like I'm reading one, but it's just from top of my head. Um, So I got a kitchen table that I purchased 11 years when I moved into my home and it obviously has some spray lacquer for the finish on it. Mm -hmm. Um, I set my, my laptop obviously gets hot there. Fans turn on. And over time, I just got a huge clouds in there, just turned solid white. Um, so I mean, I'm eventually going to build something. But what finish would you use on warm or hot surfaces? Not hot surfaces, but something to prevent the cloudiness from using something like a laptop on it. Or should I just not do that? Um, yeah, I, I get it up off of there. Um Lacquer is usually pretty good against heat. Um, it's not foolproof. Nothing is. Um, but we build a lot of stuff at work that ends up as, you know, conference tables. And there's, you know, there's data ports and plugs and everybody plugs their laptops in and these laptops will sit on them for, you know, hours at a time. The table I'm working at at work right now, um, it's a, it's a walnut table. It's, I think maybe eight feet long by four feet wide. And it's nice, big, thick piece of walnut. My laptop's sitting right on top of it. Hmm. And that's all lacquer finishes. It could just be honestly that it's just a crappy finished job too, because it's possible. a cheap table. Um, possible. Like my desk here, I, I think I just used shellac on it. I want to say. I'd have to go back and watch the video, but it has it. I keep my laptop docked here. I got it on YouTube, um, and it the fans constantly run and stuff. I have no issues with this finish, none. Yeah. So I need to go rewatch that video then. Apparently that I have on YouTube, and see what I used for my new kitchen table that I'm going to build. But, yeah, laptops are, are a lot cooler than they used to be. You know, eight nine years ago, those things used to get like brutal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just brutal. They're, they've gotten a lot better. Yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the, the hard drives. I have a work laptop. I had one, a Dell XPS. It it had an issue where it'd wake up in your laptop bag, and when you get home and take it out, I mean, you could fry an egg on it. It was so hot because it yeah. would never go to sleep. So now I have a, a Mac, and you don't even, the fans don't even have to kick on. It's amazing. Yeah. But well, let's, we won't get into that argument. <laughs> <laughs> all right all right so i'd also like to talk to you about another sponsor we have which is shaper tools the makers of shaper origin shaper origin is an intuitive handheld cnc router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking working with origin is simple you steer origin while it makes necessary real-time adjustments to ensure clean accurate results with its easy-to-use touchscreen interface, you can quickly create designs on the spot or upload existing project plans. It's small enough that you can use Origin in the shop or take it with you on the job site. 
With Origin, traditional workflows become easier and more reliable. Tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Learn more about Shaper Origin at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. And as an added bonus, you can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Upgrade your workshop today at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. All right. And I've got my, well, my last question, my third question for the night. And this question comes from Scott. And Scott says, hi, guys. Thanks for the great, inspiring, and sometimes intimidating podcast because you guys are so good. Uh, Uh Is it listening to the right podcast here? Uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> well, he's not going to be too intimidated because, you know, Hui's not on here. Hui's yeah. our knowledge base. We're not building rockets tonight. Yeah. I have a couple of questions. I have been asked to build a dining room table for my daughter. First question is about design. The table will likely be a trestle style made of walnut, a wood I have never worked with before. Well, you're going to have fun with it. The table will be about six feet long by 40 inches wide to fit into the space available. Is there a reason to glue the top along the long edge or along the short edge? In other words, long ways or side to side. You know what I'm talking about? What he's he's talking about here? You'd have two longer pieces instead of a bunch of shorter pieces glued together? Yeah, so instead of the, the... the board's going side instead of going long ways down the length of the table, gotcha. they're going across the short side of the table. Or is this a strictly or primarily an aesthetic decision? It seems like I would likely get a better edge to joint. Uh, I would likely get a better edge to joint a forty-inch edge rather than a sixty-inch edge. Second question: If I can be presumptuous. How do you keep focus on completing a project? It is always exciting to start a new project, but then, but then as the time it takes stretches out, the endless sanding continues, <laughs> the fear of applying a decent, decent finish, the excitement diminishes, and I get to the point where I just want to get it finished. Thanks again for the great information and terrific format. So in, in regards to the first question, you can do it that way. Um, I think there's an, there is part of a, a reason it's not done that often is aesthetics and you're right. However, it's also, I'd be really concerned about wood movement. So wood moves across its width, not across its length, not as much across its length as it does across its width. So if you've got a six foot long width, let's say, because of environmentals or the wood itself, it's going to move on that six feet long width. It's going to move a half an inch over the course of a year. Now on a 40 inch wide versus 72, but 40 inches wide, it's only going to move, let's say half that. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a lot easier to design around that little bit of wood movement. Now, I have seen that. My dining room table is like that, but it's also veneered. The veneer runs side to side. And the reason for that is, is it helps hide the seam because it's it's a split table. It's got a leaf in it. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. Smart. 
Yeah, that's why I did it that way. And that's one of the main reasons it's also made out of veneer, other than I just like using veneer. So that's something to consider. Um, what do you think about that, Sean? I think you nailed it. I mean, all three areas that I would think about, you nailed. Um, I, aesthetics would be the first thing, less in grain, the better visible, in my opinion, mm. which is the aesthetics. Yeah, that's the wood, a good point. The wood movement is the next thing. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> Not much for me to add to it um, for his first part of his question. I think he got it. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the end grain, too. That's all. That's a hell of a lot of end grain to yeah. sand. Oh, yeah. You can make yeah, it I don't think fit in it. pretty good, but I would, I'd want less end grain. I really like the second question, too, which is how do you keep focused on completing a project? It's always exciting to start, but then it, you know, it gets it can get old after a point in time, and then you finally dump that and say, oh, my God, now i got to sand it. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm with Scott on this. I, I used to be exactly like that, where I'd be all giddy and happy, and I couldn't sleep. You know, because I was, you know, working a, a, a day job and then I'd come home on the weekends. It's like, I get to woodwork now. I'm so happy. You know? But, you know, since I only have a limited time in the workshop on the weekend, some of the projects can take months, months to yeah. finish. You know, you've got a, a project that may take, you know, at, at a hobbyist level, you're going to spend sometimes, you know, 100 hours on these things. It's a lot of weekends, man. It's a lot of weekends take mm -hmm. a long time. And after, you know, six weeks, eight weeks, you're just like, oh, is everything done? And then you can hear, is that done yet? <laughs> um, coming from inside the house. Not that my wife sounds like that or does that, <laughs> but I've heard that can happen. So, yeah. And then, then there's a the sanding. See, but I'm a little weird when it comes to sanding and finishing. I like to sand. I find it very um, relaxing. I put some tunes on or podcasts, and I just not much zone thinking out. involved. What's that? So there's not much thinking involved or required. No, no, and I'm I I I feel like I'm accomplishing something, so I'm being productive without any real effort. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. So, and I like going over the piece with a fine-tooth comb, um, finding every little defect, every little thing I did wrong, and fixing it so it's perfect by the time it gets finished on it. Um, and I know a lot of people, I, I, I was the same way, and I still am the same way a lot of the times where putting finish on just scares the bejesus out of me. Uh, it can be frightening. You've spent, you got a hundred hours in this thing. You spent a whole weekend sanding it or two weekends sanding it. And it's cherry. I was like, Oh my God, what if it blotches? Yeah. Or you get I mean, streaks. It's, yeah. It's, <laughs> that is a, that is a real fear. Um, all I can suggest is, you know, make some stuff. And practice with a type of finish. Don't try to be a master of all finishes. You know, a, a really good example, and I, I'm not 
saying anything you're talking about, but like Matt Cremona. Matt Cremona uses one type of finish. He puts armor seal on everything. I've never seen him use anything else. Yeah. Because, because it, it works and it's easy and it's foolproof. So that's a that's a really good recommendation there, Scott. Try Armor Seal. It's not cheap. Um, it's not super expensive. It's not cheap, but it's very easy to put on. It's like I said, it's almost it's so easy, even Sean can put it on. Sometimes. Sometimes. I've got a lot of botched armor seal finish projects, let me tell you. So how how do you how do you keep focused on completing a project? With me, it's just a matter. I just want to get it done. Yeah. Else. I don't know. I just start to feel like if if it's just sheer, if it's just something, well, there's two two trains of thought here. One, if it's just a, large, a big project that's taking time, you just got to suck it up, buttercup, and get it done. <laughs> and, you know, if it's the second thing is I'm being lazy and just not working on it, I don't know. I just start to feel guilty, and I'm like, man, I really need to get that done. And then I suck it up buttercup and get it done. Um, but what really helps me stay motivated is after I'm done with a really large project is to build a box, build another box. And they're quick, they're easy, they look good, that you can they're easy to finish, shellac. And then you build another big project. And yeah, then you build quick, a, they're quick wins. Right. The quick wins keep you motivated. Um, and man, everybody loves a box. I've guy has a lot of boxes. He's given me a beautiful box. I have a bunch of boxes. Woodworkers love making boxes because they look good. You get to use some cool looking material and you didn't require a lot of it. You get them done quick and then you get back to the furniture. Quick wins helps me stay yep. motivated. Yep. I, I, I would agree with that. That's a pretty good, pretty good point, Sean. Well, All right. You. Well, I hope that helps you, Scott. And Sean, you've got the last question of the night. All right. This is from Paul. Good afternoon. Good evening. And good night, gentlemen. Wanted to hear your preferred method of tabletop attachment to a base, Z-clips, Z figure eights, or oversized holes, or any other method you can speak on that you prefer. Paul. Um, for the longest time, I was using nothing but Z-clips, but, man, I would, and maybe it's, I did it the wrong way, but I would route a groove through the entire inner part of the apron and use Z-clips. Worked great, but, and again, maybe I'm just dumb, um, but <laughs> you have a long groove on the inside of your aprons that I don't know, just didn't, didn't look good, but who's looking underneath that anyway. Um, so I switched to figure eights. Uh, they're easy to just, you know, use a forster bit, drill it out and pop into wherever you need it. Um, one method that I would like to try is the threaded inserts. I think that they, again, they look good. Um, I haven't tried it before. Uh, I'd probably like to give that a go so that if I'm, you know, removing a top, it's just, I don't know. It's just an elegant way to remove it, I guess. Nothing, uh, no pros or cons versus the other methods is a method I haven't tried, but figure eights are my, are my go-to now. Uh, Guy, what are your preferred methods? Yeah, I've, I've done it all, I think. Um, the, the oversized holes through the aprons, uh, Z-clips, um, Wooden clips that, you know, you make. Oh, yeah, the buttons or whatever? The buttons, yeah, buttons. Huh. Um, I haven't tried those yet. Uh, Z clips. I've used dominoes. I've used just I said, just about everything. And I, I, I know I talk about work, but that's 
probably the reason why I do this now. I don't use anything but figure eights. They're quick, they're easy, and they work. Yeah. But that's not always the best thing to do. So you're building a reproduction piece. Now we're talking to the gentleman earlier. I'm sorry, I can't remember his, his name. We were talking about building shaker nightstands. And he's worried about putting, you know, plywood in the bottom of a drawer. If you're that concerned about putting plywood in the bottom of the drawer, you're not going to use figure eights. Right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a you're trying to make it a reproduction piece, A, or B, you're trying to make it like they used to make it, which is cool. I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, it, it helps develop your skills, your sen- especially designing it, your sense of design, all that stuff. It's, it's very satisfying to build something the way they used to build it, you know, 200 years ago, except you have nicer tools. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so in a case like that, you know, we were talking about the shaker nightstands before. I, I'd be using buttons. Yeah. Because that is kind of the standard thing that people used to use for a very long time are buttons. Um, so I, I guess what I'm saying, it really depends on what you're building. If you're building a, a, a dining room table for yourself that, you know, it, it's not fine furniture, but it's not junk either. But it's not like this high-end, highfalutin, hoity-toity piece of furniture. Yeah, throw some figure eights in there. That'll work fine. But if it is, you know, you're trying to do all this stuff period-specific or a certain aesthetic, and it's like, eh, I'd put buttons on it. Yeah. Um, Does that make sense? No, absolutely. I, I definitely agree with that. One of the, you know, like Philip Morley uses these uh, inserts, and they just, they look really good. So if I was using doing a high-end piece, I'd probably go that route just because of the aesthetics. Nobody's going to look under there, but if they do, you know what? They're going to be like, man, that looks really good. Yeah, it's a detail. Yeah, but he makes really nice stuff. But okay, Paul, hope that helps. And I think that will do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions you would like to answer, you can send them through the podcast contact page over at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at Woodshop Life. We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Guy, where can they find you? Um, you can go into just most of your standard uh, social media apps and just search for Guy's Woodshop. Let's not forget a shout out to Hui. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. We were wheelers today. So don't forget you can find Hui at the Alabama at Alabama Woodworker on Instagram and YouTube and his own website, alabamawoodworker.com. All the socials are linked on the page, I think is what he says. You'll have to yep. I'm sure maybe he'll insert something while he's editing it. But uh okay, cool, great. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right, see you, Bob. See ya.